Good evening. It is absolutely roasting. Sorry, I had to run out because I'm sweating that much. I'm going to try and stay sane. But if anybody, if these both go dry, Peter, you're going to have to run for me and give me some more water. Um, so I'm going to be speaking for the next three Sunday evenings. So I thought it would make sense to do something that was continual between the three of them. And you know, you get that way where you sit down and you go, okay, what, what fits three? So I was trying to find something and I was reading, I've been reading in Philippians and I thought actually Philippians chapter 1 uh, opens up really nicely, uh, kind of into three sections. So we're going to look at one tonight, one next Sunday and one the Sunday after. So we're going to open up by reading the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1, should pop up, pop up on the screen uh, and it'll be, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. It says... Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn, uh, yearn for you, uh, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Let's just pray again. Father, for your word, we thank you. Lord, from wherever we come from this evening, whatever circumstances we face, Lord, we ask that you would still our hearts. Lord, would you speak to each and every one of us in ways we wouldn't expect. Lord, would you speak to us. Amen. Amen. So as I said, in the next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at and focusing in Philippians chapter 1. And I guess I chose this passage because I find it really exciting. And you, if you know me, you know I use the word exciting a lot. But this really is exciting. And I think there is a massive relevance in this passage for us today as well. Uh, and I hope that there is something of that incite, uh, excitement that comes to you. Something of that excitement uh, that grabs you. And what we're going to be focusing on is we're going to be focusing on Paul's reaction to the circumstances that he faced and how actually he grew massively in what were really, really rubbish circumstances. Next week, we're going to look a bit at Paul's mindset whilst he was in prison. We're going to look at what it looks like to hold the gospel of Christ above absolutely everything else. And in two weeks, we're going to take out the hammer blow. We're going to look at Paul's challenge to live as Christ and what that looks like irrespective of the circumstances that we face. 
There's a couple of interesting facts about the place of Philippi, the city of Philippi, that I thought would be helpful for us to open up with. The city of Philippi eh, that Paul is writing to here is in the northeastern region of Greece, which is today Macedonia. Founded four centuries before Christ by Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great. That bit's not very useful, I just thought it was quite interesting. Um, but what is useful is it was conquered by the Romans in the middle of the second century before Christ. So that means that Philippi was a Roman colony, eh, as Acts 16 tells us. So as soon as I hear colony, I always start thinking like Chinatown or Little Italy or, to be more proper, somewhere like Gibraltar, Malta, just a little version of Rome. What happens in Rome affects what happens in Philippi, and that's quite important. The other interesting point that's important to this is there was no synagogue in Philippi. The first thing that Paul did when he reached cities like Antioch, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, amongst others, was go to the synagogue and preach. He would go to the synagogue and preach Christ crucified. But obviously the fact that there was no synagogue meant that he couldn't go and do as he would usually do. What it tells us, the fact there was no synagogue means there wasn't even 10 Jewish men in Philippi. Because that was the number that was required for the quorum, for the leadership of the synagogue. And I kind of imagine Paul trotting along on his missionary journey and getting to Philippi and thinking, man, what am I going to do here? So he always visited synagogues in the new places that he went, but he couldn't do that here. So there was something a bit different about Philippi for Paul. What happens if there's no synagogues for the Jews to meet, any Jewish people that there was would go and pray beside the river. It's got something to do in connected with the Babylonian exile. But if there's less than 10 Jews, they'll go together eh, and they will pray by the river. That's where he went. And we know the story in Acts 16 um, that he finds a group of women. Uh, we read of the first conversion in Lydia um, and so on. Lydia's house becomes the first church in Philippi and all this sort of stuff. If you want the history of that but Acts 16 is the place to go. So what that tells us is for Paul there was something a little bit different about this f- place called Philippi. There was no synagogue for him to go and preach in. And something, maybe connected to that, maybe not, but I think it is, that we see from this letter that the people of Philippi hold a special place in Paul's heart. The very foundations of the church were were a bit different. They were radical, as all the early church was. And I think there was something in that that excited Paul. And that's something that we're going to look at in the next few weeks. So this first 11 verses talks about thankfulness, talks about prayer. If you read the book of Philippians, it seems a bit strange to read the first part of chapter 1 because it's not the real nitty-gritty, so to speak. It's not the real theology. It's not the real, when Paul gets right into it, um, about just preaching Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The other thing that's important to note, and probably the overriding narrative of what we're going to look at, is the circumstance of Paul as he writes this letter. Paul writes this from prison, quite where we're not entirely sure, either Rome eh, or Caesarea, um, one of the two of those. um, But he's in prison. And in prison, there's two realities for him. He's either released or he's made an example of and he's executed. 
this letter written somewhere 11, 13 years after he'd first been to Philippi. Since those first incredible moments with Lydia and the foundations of the church. He'd visited them again since, and now he decided it was time to write to the church. On a kind of side note from that, I want us to think about joy for a minute. How many things are there in life that rob us of joy? How many circumstances, how many situations do we face that feel so far out of our control, that feel so far away from us, all of a sudden we feel completely drowned? And any sense of joy, anything that remotely relates to happiness or joy seems so far that way, they couldn't be any further away. What rob us of joy? People can rob us of joy. Other people's actions, other people's words. Maybe it's work, maybe it's money, maybe it's stuff. We don't have enough stuff, I want more stuff. Maybe stuff is something that can rob us of joy. And so can worry. Worry robs us of joy. There are so many things that we can go from feeling like this with God. We can feel really connected. The joy of the Lord is upon us. It's amazing. But some kind of situation, some kind of circumstance comes along and all of a sudden, I feel so distant. I feel so far away from God. I wonder if you could add up the hours, days, weeks, months that you spent worrying, that you've spent not enjoying the joy of the Lord. I think it would be quite a frightening number to add up that time. Paul is our best, one of the best examples of not letting circumstances affect the joy that he finds in the Lord. I find it completely inspirational. And it's this word focus, this term single-mindedness that, that I've been focusing on. This idea that Paul was focused. He was so focused on the advancement of the gospel. He was so focused on seeing people live lives that glorify Christ. Do you know what? The fact that he was in prison, he could care. He didn't care. The fact that he could be killed. As long as Jesus is glorified, man, whatever. I'll take it. As long as the gospel goes, if I get out of prison, I can go evangelize. If I die, people will hear the fact I'd be martyred. People will come to Jesus. It's a win-win. That was Paul because he was so dedicated to the gospel. How can we stop the world from stealing our joy? How can we live lives that glorify Christ and walk in the ways of the Spirit? How can we focus on all that we have in Christ and not get distracted? Let's dig into this passage. The first two verses are fairly straightforward. They're kind of Paul's usual greeting. Um, but the one thing to note from that is it's really personal. It's a really personal letter that he's writing to these guys and it shows a lot of affection. Paul likes these guys and that's really good for us to note as we go into this. So as we know, Paul's facing a lot of difficult circumstances. He's in prison, not for the first time, but he faces the reality of being released or being killed. 
But despite those circumstances, Paul was rejoicing. What was the secret of Paul's joy? Focus. Single-mindedness. Being focused on the work of Christ. What does it mean for us to be focused? I guess it means for us to say that actually it doesn't matter. It makes no difference what happens to me just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel is shared with others. In spite of circumstances, in spite of people, in spite of stuff, all the things in the world that try to distract us, I will live for God. If we dive into verses 3 to 6, Paul says to the people, says to the church, I'm thinking about you. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer Uh, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and I am sure of this that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ so Paul says hi he tells them he's addressing his letter to him and despite all the stuff he's got going on in life he talks about them I don't know about you but the first thing I'd be doing is I'd be moaning I've been moaning, I've been going on about the fact that I'm in jail, the fact that things are completely rubbish, but not Paul. The first thing he tells these people is, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you and I hope that you're doing well. He doesn't tell them of his hardships, but he tells them how joyful he is because he's thinking about them. Not just because of the joy that he has in the Lord, but the joy that he has with just being their friend. With having fellowship with them. With being in partnership with them. I love listening to somebody from the older generation that's maybe struggling. My great granny was a great example towards the end of her life. She died at 99, three weeks before she was 100. Um, and, And she had all her marbles until the very end. It was great. But there was just something that when she clocked a memory, her face would light up. You know, and she could think right back to, very far back, however far back you could think back if you were 99, but a long way. She could think all the way back, and you would just see that face light up. I love that. I love those moments, and I kind of imagine that's where Paul is. He's kind of sitting in his cell like, oh well, what am I going to do? And he starts thinking about his friends, and he's happy. There is joy. Paul is there. He's giving thanks for his friends. And what's also interesting as we read Acts 16 is it's not like he has that much of a reason to be joyful. Because he went to Philippi, Paul and Silas, followed by this possessed girl that the guys used as a fortune teller to make money. They healed her. And then the guys with the money came and got them, were really unhappy at them. The guys get punished. The guys get thrown in prison. In a nutshell... They rescued this poor exploited girl, but they ended up in prison and they were beaten. Doesn't sound like great evangelism in my book. Something that puts me in prison that gets me beaten up doesn't sound like something that I particularly want to get involved with. But not Paul. To me, those memories would strike fear. If I'd been to Philippi and that was my experience, I certainly wouldn't be going back again. I could maybe write them a letter and 
send it away, but I wouldn't be going back again. And I don't think I'd be calling them my best friends either. But Paul was thinking past that. Paul was thinking past those bad scenarios, bad situations, and thinking of moments like the salvation of Lydia. How exciting that must have been, going to this totally new place and being there when the first person saw Jesus. I just, it must have been the most incredible thing to have witnessed. And it's those memories that brought Paul pure joy. As we continue through into verse 5, there's a potential that that's talking about the financial fellowship that the people in Philippi had with Paul. He picks that up a bit more in chapter 4. And as far as we're aware, it's the only church that entered into financial fellowship with Paul to support his ministry. I think it's really cool. I think it's a really cool example of this kind of gospel-shaped partnership that they knew what Paul was doing and they saw how they could support him and they dove right in and they went and addressed the needs. The other thing I think is quite interesting is he uses the word partnership, he uses the word fellowship quite a lot uh, in the book. And I think this is an example of true fellowship. You know, willing to overstep that mark of politeness, willing to overstep that mark of good conversation and go, actually, what are your needs? What can I do? And that was the people in Philippi's reaction to Paul. They saw the need, they were willing to address it, possibly step out of their comfort zone a bit. And I think there's a big challenge in there for us. As we continue into verse 6, I am sure, Paul says to them, there is something about confidence that just permeates from the church at Philippi, that permeates from Paul. This confidence, this steadfastness, I'm sure, I'm sure because they have Jesus. There is security, there is confidence in the salvation that they have in Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is at work. This isn't just something that Paul was writing to them that was only for them. But no, this is absolutely for us to take on board. That God who started the work on the day of salvation in our lives doesn't abandon us there. Doesn't dive in and out and come along and leave. But that God, when we commit ourselves, is continuing that work within us. Ali, thank you for that video. Thank you for that prayer. What power, what desire we must have to see our young people, to see our children see Jesus. Thank you for that. Paul was absorbed. He was absorbed with joy and with thankfulness because he has security in Christ. And he had this fellowship with the Philippians. It was just something so beautiful. Can you see through those difficult circumstances? Like Paul, can you see beyond the rubbish? Can you see beyond what is right in front of you? What was right in front of Paul? Another day. 
Another day in prison. But he had such an outward view. He could see past the blinkers of what was directly in front of him. He could see that God is king, that God is so much more, that in Christ there is something that is bigger than his circumstances. As we carry on into verse 7 and 8, it says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. We move to a deeper level here. To a deeper level from just, I'm thinking about you, but him saying, you are in my heart. I hold you in my heart. There is a deep connection with these people here. And he tells us exactly why. We are fellow partakers of grace. What a great phrase that is, isn't it? Partakers of grace. You notice this as well, the Apostle Paul that planted all these churches, this massive guy, how does he view himself in relation to the people right here? I'm a partaker of grace, you're a partaker of grace. We are absolutely level people. No arrogance do we see in Paul whatsoever. Paul's sincere love for his friends cannot be disguised. There's, it's just so evident in these verses of Paul's sincerity towards his friends. And I guess to flip that as a challenge to us, how sincere are we as people? Do we sincerely love and care for others, not just in the church, but out with that? Do we go beyond that, yeah, I'm thinking about you? Do we go beyond that to that point of real, there's issues here, how do I help? What can I do? Do we break through that barrier? I think as well that this is just a great example. The partnership, the fellowship is a fantastic example of Christian love. A Christian love that we should seek to emulate. Christian love is a product of salvation. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. It's the rubber stamp. How do you know you're saved? Because you show it. That's what he's saying here. How does somebody know that you are no longer in death but you are in Christ? Because people will see it. Because it will radiate from you. I love this analogy that Christian love is like the oil that keeps the machine of life running smoothly. I quite like that. I think that's quite a nice wee analogy for us. It's interesting as well that he says you all. He doesn't single anybody out. He doesn't pick his best friend. He doesn't address the first convert. But he addresses all of them that are in fellowship with the Lord. How does Paul prove this Christian love? He was suffering on their behalf. His shackles were evidence of the love that he had for these people. 
Ephesians 3, Paul calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He knew he was there for the advancement of the kingdom. Because of Paul's trials, because of what he faced, Christianity was going to get a fair trial in Rome. And because Philippi, as a Roman colony, is directly affected by what happened in Rome, whatever happened to Paul, in turn, from the top down the way, would affect the church. Paul is a great example of somebody who didn't just speak, but he went and he did. Just back to this phrase, partakers of grace. One awesome, awesome saying. Whatever Paul did, wherever he went, whether it be prison, whether it be preaching in a synagogue, whether it be the marketplace, wherever it be, he knew that there was this common grace that was bounding him to fellow believers. And I also think that the Philippian Christians are a great example to us here as well. Obviously, it must be fairly easy to support your missionary if your missionary is Paul. So you try and ask him for a report on how productive he's being and what he's up to. He's doing quite a lot of stuff. He's seen a lot of people come to Jesus. So there is that side of it. But you know what? They stick by him. They don't go, you're going to prison, that's a bit edgy for us. Or, "Mm, I don't quite like your tactics here. I don't like the fact that you annoyed those slave traders, that you annoyed the guys that had this demon-possessed girl. That's a bit bit confrontational for us. No, they stuck by him, and they showed commitment to Paul as well. How loyal are you? That's another question I think comes from this. How committed are you? I don't know about you, but in difficult circumstances, in difficult situations, sometimes my commitment, my loyalty, my reliability can go sometimes because you just kind of want to protect yourself. You think, I come first. Let's put up the gates. Let's hold myself tight. But there's no evidence of that in this at all. The Philippians recognize Paul's focus on the gospel. They recognize the single-mindedness that no circumstance would, Paul, would pull Paul away from Jesus. Finally, we jump into verses 9 to 11. And it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Not only is Paul joyful, not only is he praying for them, but he genuinely wants to see them grow. He genuinely wants to see what is best for the people. Paul's opening couple of verses of most of his letters show us a theme that develops throughout. And what does the beginning of this letter show us? It shows us appreciation and this shared assurance that they have that God will complete a work, that God is at work. 
and he shares with them what he prays for them. He prays for their spiritual growth. He prays that they grow in love. As Paul references in the second and fourth chapters of Philippians, there's little cracks starting to creep in. Of course there is. It's church. Little things start to give. There's little things not great. And that's why Paul says, I want you to grow. I want you to grow in a way to be more like Christ. Why? Because it's essential that when you face the difficult situations, that you will stand and you will stand firm. He has a love that puts others before himself, a love that knows no limits. He also prays that they grow in knowledge and discernment. We need to be able to see a situation. We need to be able to assess a situation and then go and do something about it. Love alone doesn't do it. But knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and wisdom, which we only find in the word of God. Love and insight and knowledge must be brought together. How do we gain it? We read It comes from divine revelation from God. We read, we study, and we put into practice what God tells us to. Who influences us? What influences us? We know what we say. Whatever influences us is what we give out. We must be influenced by the word of God. And as we live, as we dwell in that presence, we become more like him. He also prays that they grow in holiness. Approve what is excellent. Discern it, choose it, do it. It's not enough just to love. It's not just enough to love and see what is right in a situation. But we must put it into practice. We must do as Christ did and go and do. Do we really want what is best for us? Of course we do. That's why we do rubbish stuff. Because we do it because we think it's what's best for us. And we know every time we do something against what God wants, we find out that it is not what is best for us. Because we think we know best. What is best for us? Purity and righteousness are what's best for us. Do we crave it? Do we crave purity? Do we crave righteousness? Do we crave to stand blameless before the throne of God? Of course none of us can get to this level of doing enough good to deserve God. But do we look at the sacrifice of Christ and think, you know what, I need to do everything I can to live my life for this God. Paul had such a genuine and godly love for the church in Philippi. And I think as we consider the circumstances that Paul was in, it's incredible. Not only was he thinking about them, but he was burdened for them. He was burdened and he wanted to see them cling to Christ. He wanted to see them grow in Christ. He wanted them to put into practice the truths of God. How easy is it to go into survival mode when the going gets tough? 
when there's situations we don't know what to do to close ourselves off. I don't know about you, but if Paul was sitting there and curled himself up into a wee ball, I probably wouldn't blame him because it's pretty scary not knowing what's going to happen to you. But he didn't do it. Why? Because he had Christ here. Because he knew that what God wanted, that God's purposes were so much higher than the difficulties that he faced. Just to round us off, there is a massive challenge in this. That Paul was so focused on Christ, his circumstances were not the be-all and end-all. His circumstances were not what shaped him. Why? Because he was focused. Because he was single-minded on Jesus. He was so focused on seeing the church built up. So focused on seeing people coming into a relationship with Christ. That he was okay with what would happen to him. I'd love to be there. I'd love to be at a point that no matter what happens to me tomorrow, I will stand and proclaim, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. That's where I want to be. Can I promise you right now that no matter what I face tomorrow, will I do that? I hope so. I really, really hope so. But the only way to get there, the only way to be strong people is to be strong in the Lord. That's the only way that we can get there. Quite often at our boys' Bible study on a Tuesday night, I give them Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul, the man in prison that's ultimately going to be decapitated, said these words. Rejoice in the Lord always. Find ways to rejoice if you're struggling. Just look around you when you come out of fear. If nature is something that that just wows you, which it does me at the minute, it's incredible. Rejoice for it. Let it be a reason to be joyful. Our family, God's provision, our church family, our friends, just like Paul did, find reasons to be joyful in there. But you know, even if it's hard to find joy in those things, the biggest reason for us to rejoice is the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that Christ paid on our behalf. Bring your challenges, bring your circumstances before God. Sometimes it's hard to see the positives. But bring it before God. But I promise you, if you lift your eyes to him, if you focus on Christ, Christ will do amazing things. Let's pray. Lord God, what a challenge we have. What a challenge we have to look beyond what is in front of us. That with the challenge alone of of loving others in a way that exalts you. Lord, would you challenge us this week? Would you show us the areas of our life where we struggle to find joy in you? Lord, would you help us to live in the joy that Christ has won the battle? that sin has been defeated and Christ Jesus is Lord. Would you help us in any circumstances we face this week to recognize and be joyful in that? In your name we pray.
Amen.